Good morning to the warrior class of Taylor's First Baptist Church. So good to uh, have each and every one of you here with us this morning. As I came in this morning, I was reminded of the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. He was just kind of trying to get away, had been running from the Lord, and he was walking somewhere on a Sunday morning in a major snowstorm hit at the time he was walking, not looking to go to church, but he was forced to step into an old Methodist chapel because the storm was so great. And as he went in, there was some 10 people there or so. The preacher didn't show up. Some man just got up and said that you must look to Jesus. And a simple sermon that Spurgeon would say would not have passed the test of any great orator or preaching. That simple sermon that morning... Charles Spurgeon was converted to faith, just kind of stumbling into church. Well, I probably think that many of you feel like you may have stumbled in this morning. Pouring down rain, we lost an hour. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? We lost an hour. The students, the students are gone. They're off uh, at our uh, at a retreat this weekend, some 150 or more of them. So we just kind of stumble in this morning. But anytime. God's people get together to sing praise to his name and open up his word. God can and will move. Amen? So that's what we want to do this morning. And I'm going to take, just like that old Methodist layman who got up and preached, this is probably a D-minus sermon, but let's see if we can make something good out of it, okay? Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, this really is a passage that's kind of a turning point here. If you remember uh, last week, we looked there at the uh, Saul in Jerusalem and kind of did did that uh, time there after his conversion. It ends with verse 31 last week. That's where we ended last week, verse 31. And verse 31 kind of serves as a turning point, another summary statement of what's going on in the life of the church. Not as detailed as we saw back in chapter 2, or chapter 4, but, but one statement of what's happening, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is summary statement. This kind of takes us to a turning point in the book of Acts. Persecution had been the theme up to this point. Opposition to the gospel. We've been talking about that a good bit, how uh, those were opposed to the gospel were trying to stop it from continuing. If you look back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you find kind of that tipping point. As persecution had come, Stephen had been stoned. It says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so here we find in chapter 8 that because of the persecution, the people had been scattered, Judea and Samaria everywhere, except for the apostles. They remained in Jerusalem, but the Lord took the great threat that was against his church, especially symbolized by this one Saul who was looking to persecute and throw in prison, and he radically saved him there on the road to Damascus. And that had to be a shot in the arm for the saints there who were believing, especially for the apostles in Jerusalem who cared for those saints. So we pick up here in Acts chapter 9. We pick up with Peter. 
No, we may think again that we just saw the conversion of Saul, so maybe we continue with Saul. But no, we're going to go back to Peter for a few chapters. Um, and Peter's going to arise in this moment in the life of the early church, a time of peace. Surely he didn't think this would happen again. The persecution and opposition was so great. Surely it was going to continue like this. But as verse 31 tells us, now we actually have a time of peace within the church, for the church, throughout all of Judea and Samaria. And Peter is going to take advantage of this time of peace by going throughout all of the regions, encouraging the saints and preaching the gospel. And that's where we pick up here. The conversion of Saul, we'll come back to Saul in chapter 13, and these next few chapters are going to focus during this time of peace for the church on the ministry of Peter and particularly prepare for something that Peter never would have thought he would be able to do, preach the gospel and reach the Gentiles. So as we get to this shift in the book, a seismic shift where the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles in chapter 10, Luke first begins this ministry of Peter. He first begins this ministry of Peter recording these two healings here in Acts 9, 32 through 43. So if you'll follow along with me, we'll read this together. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screen. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the power of the name of Christ Jesus. And so today, as we gather in this place, we gather in this room, Father, we, we pray that you would do a work here as your word is proclaimed, that you would do something through your spirit in the hearts and lives of every single person in this room, Father, so that we can say today that we are better followers of you because of your word. So, Father, help us. Help us as we look to this passage to exalt the name of Christ Jesus, to lift him up. And, Father, as we know, when Christ is lifted up, you will draw all men to him. And so, Father, today we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus and Lord. Amen. 
if we can, we start this section with Peter. Let's remind ourselves of Peter's history real quick. He was an uneducated fisherman who was there fishing on a day whenever Jesus came up and called him to follow him. He became educated as a disciple of Jesus Christ, having followed Jesus, listened to Jesus, and been encouraged by Jesus. And as he was a disciple, he was an outspoken follower. There were good times that he spoke out. Whenever, whenever Jesus says, will you too, will y'all leave me as well? And Peter looked at him and says, where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or, or whenever Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter comes out strong, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. These confessions were powerful. But there was also bad times for Peter. Whenever Jesus told his disciples he would be going to the cross, and Peter said, it will never happen, not on my watch. I'm not going to let you go. And Jesus turns and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That was not a good day for him. He was outspoken in many ways, good and bad, but he was never fearful to speak up. But we remember, too, he was a ashamed denier of Jesus. There, whenever he said he would never deny him, as Jesus goes to the cross and through that evening and that morning as the trial, if you will, takes place, Peter denies Jesus three times. And not to some special authority that could throw him in prison or put him to death. He denies him to a slave girl and to those around a fire, to those who really don't matter. Peter denies Jesus. But also he was restored by Christ. After Jesus arose again, Jesus comes to Peter and personally restores him to the ministry and tells him three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So Peter becomes this great testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, one who denied him before, but after he was willing to be a bold proclaimer of Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, it was Peter who steps up as the spokesman for the apostles and proclaims the coming of the Spirit, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Peter becomes this bold proclaimer of the truth. And this history for Peter is known in the church. It's known throughout those who, who maybe believed, and especially those in Jerusalem as that time came as he preached in Acts chapter 2 and continued. But it is highly likely that Peter was not well known outside of Jerusalem. His ministry was not expanded to that point yet. It had not gone. So as he sets out here to encourage the saints, Luke wants us to know particularly of two events that take place. As Peter leaves out from Jerusalem, feeling encouraged by the peace and hearing the, the word of the growth, the rapid growth of the church, Peter wants us to have these two events before us, these two healings, if you will. Before Peter makes it to Caesarea, where he's going to meet Cornelius and, and have that Gentile convert that starts the gospel to the Gentiles, before that, he wants to give us these two encounters these two encounters, these two healings that testify to Peter's place as an apostle. The first encounter is very brief in the town of Lydda where he finds a man named Aeneas. There in chapter uh, 9, verse 32, he's going down to all the saints who lived in Lydda. He's encouraging them. There he found a man named Aeneas. It does not tell us whether Aeneas was a believer at this point. It does not tell us that he was already a disciple, but it does let us know that Aeneas was well known. For in seemingly in Lydda and in Sharon, everybody knew who Aeneas was because when he is 
raised up and no longer paralyzed, everybody knows. They, they see it. So here's this one who's in bad shape. He's bedridden for eight years. And, and understanding that, that in this time and age, surely they lived hand to, to mouth, right? It was what you could make every day to help feed you. So here is a man who is bedridden. And being bedridden for eight years is really a death sentence. In so many ways, you, you have to have people to care for you. You have to have people watch over you. He's absolutely dependent on somebody else to care for him and watch over him. And here, this one who's bedridden for eight years in this terrible condition, it says paralyzed, Peter comes to him, Aeneas calls him by name, and he simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now, it's important for us to remember the purpose of these signs and wonders that we've seen in the book of Acts before. First, they give us a look at the power of the gospel and the hope of heaven. Here, we have what was wrong being made right again. In other words, this one who was bedridden, this one who was paralyzed, this is not God's good design. This, this state that he was in was, was because of the, the nature of sin and the effects of sin that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It had come. And so these signs and wonders were, were statements. They were reversing the evil of sin itself and the toll it takes on humanity. And what they do is they point us to a day when paralysis will be no more, right? Just like blindness will be no more, just like deafness will be no more. We look for a day when everything that was wrong be made right again. These give us this idea of heaven itself, of how Jesus has came to not only save sinners from their sin, but save them from the curse of sin and the effects of sin as well. These healings become a testimony to the gospel and how the Lord Jesus is going to make everything new again. But not only that, they also give testimony to the power of God to save us from our sins. They're looking forward to the day that, that everything wrong will be made right again and Jesus has come to do that. But also, it speaks of how the Lord has come to save us from our sins. They testify to the greater work. And what I mean by that is, the greater work is not healing a lame man and getting him to rise up. The greater work is saving us from our sins and making us right before God. Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 9, by the way, when he sees the lame man in Matthew chapter 9, and he just looks at him and says, your sin is forgiven. And everybody goes, how in the world can you do that? Well, well, I mean, anybody can say your sin's forgiven, right? They, they get mad. The Pharisees get mad at Jesus. Anybody can say your sin's forgiven. And Jesus goes, okay, which one's harder, to tell him your sin's forgiven or to tell him to rise up and walk? And he looks at the lame man and says, rise up and walk. And he does. Jesus' point is the very authority and power to save this one who is lame and get him to walk again only testifies to the greater power that Jesus has come to save you from your sins. What good is it for you to walk if you're still lost in your sinfulness? What good is it for you to be wholly right physically if you're still lost and your heart is still condemned before God? What good would that be? Jesus is making the point there. And here we see the same thing. These signs and wonders are pointing us to some greater work that God is to do. Some greater work. And hence, as we see that, 
Verse 35 tells us, Immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The healing of Aeneas was a testimony of the power of God to save us. It was speaking to the authority of God to save us from our sins, the greater work. And Peter, who was this unknown maybe amongst the believers or amongst those in Lydda and Sharon, now, now he becomes known as one who carries the name of Jesus to proclaim the good news of Christ. He becomes known. Side note here then. It's a good morning for a side note. God is the one who heals, not man. We must remember this truth. God is the one who heals, not man. Peter was not known as a faith healer. That's not how we remember him. Peter is known as an apostle, someone who proclaims and brings the good news of Christ to those who need it, which reminds us that what is primary to God's church is the preaching and teaching of God's word. In our post-apostolic age, we have the word of God. Peter, and at this time, was, was writing it. This was during the time that the New Testament was being formed as, as we see Luke reporting what would take back. And now, in our day and age, we have the Word of God. So as we pull back from this, we, we recognize that the healings here point to belief. And that belief here, these healings here, point to the truthfulness of God's Word. Does God still heal today? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. Whether by ordinary means or modern medical technology or through extraordinary display of his power, what we know is that however healing comes, it is only God that can do it. And God in his power, God in his power uses the ordinary means. He uses that common grace that he gives to all of us, a mind to think through. He uses those miracles of medicine and all those things. But you ask just about any doctor, and they know it is not them that heals. It is only God that can do it. Someone greater has to do this. Someone greater. So God still heals to display his power, and he does it through ordinary means and extraordinary displays. He can do it any way he wants to. He is God. So it is right for us to pray for miracles. But let me give you two buts. Two buts here. It is right for us to pray for miracles. God still heals, but there is nowhere today that anyone tells the Lord when and where he must do it. There is nobody on the planet that has the Holy Spirit in their pocket and can command it to move when they wish and how they wish. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? No man can contrive this. No one of us can do this. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus says in John 3. The Spirit blows. It don't, we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. It is the Spirit. It is sovereign over this. So no one person, no matter what they may do before a body like a church, no matter what they may think, no one person can command or tell the Lord when and where he must heal. No one person can do it. The other but is while God still heals with the completion of God's word and the end of the apostolic age with it, miracles are no longer needed to authenticate the message of the gospel. Miracles are no longer needed to authenticate the message of the gospel. 
What I mean by that is, is here in this passage, we see that this miracle authenticates what Peter is going to proclaim, right? Just as we saw in, in Matthew chapter 9, that, that Jesus is uh, saying, I can forgive you of your sins, and then he heals the man, authenticates the authority that Jesus has that is greater to forgive sins. And so here we see how Peter needs these, or the Lord does these miracles to authenticate Peter's message in the truth of the gospel. And when he does, people believe. But because we have the final word of God, because it has been given to us in the New Testament, we don't need miracles to authenticate this message any longer. This message is authenticated by the very message itself. Miracles don't change hearts. The gospel does. The gospel does. As I said before, what good would it be for, for you to, to have your legs healed after being paralyzed, but your soul condemned to hell still? And what the scriptures do now is what we read this, the message of the gospel is authenticated by the text itself, not by miracles. So friends, what I mean is, you don't need to wait around to see a miracle before you believe the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel has been verified throughout history in his word and throughout history of his people. And I stand today as a miracle myself of one who was lost and undone and whose sins have been forgiven. And anybody, anybody that claims Jesus is a miracle, that you too were once dead in your trespasses, but you've been made alive together in Christ. Which brings us, of course, to our second encounter. Our second encounter here is even more spectacular in the town of Joppa. The text tells us of a lady named Tabitha, an Aramaic name. So Luke provides, for those who may not be familiar with it, the Greek name, which means Dorcas. Both of those mean gazelle. I grew up with my grandmother being in the Dorcas Sunday School class, and I thought that was the weirdest name in the world, the Dorcas Sunday School class. But here they find that Sunday School class from this passage of a woman who was doing good deeds and good works in the church, and so they cared for other ladies, for widows, and that's where they got the name. Joppa was about 10 miles from Lydda, a two-hour walk at this time, if you will. This lady passes away while Peter was still in Lydda. And so some of those believers in Joppa send for Peter to come. Tabitha, as it says, clearly was a disciple, a very faithful disciple, full of good works and acts of charity. And the young church there was encouraged by her. And, and here uh, we see also that this young church in Joppa, as the gospel goes forward, what do they start to do? They start caring for one another in mercy ministries. This is not something that they had to be taught. It just was pouring out of Dorcas's life, of Tabitha's life. To, as she's changed. She cares for others. A good testimony for us. And here we see the sorrow upon her death. The sorrow upon her death in verse 39, when Peter makes it, he gets there, and he went to them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. You see the sorrow of the church. Now understand there's also some questions here that may come. I mean, here you have Tabitha, who was a believer. 
She was one who was a follower of Christ. And, and what was the promise of God? This would be addressed by Peter himself later in one of his letters. What was the promise of God? The promise of God is though, if you believe, you shall never die, right? I'm the resurrection of life, Jesus says. You believe in me, you shall never die shall live forever. And so ultimately, some of these, these early church as, as disciples died, they had to wrestle with this. What did that mean? What does this look like? And, and surely this only increased their, their, their pain and sorrow to try to understand and wrestle through the theology of resurrection and, and, and the afterlife and, and all of these things. And again, Peter will address this, maybe even thinking back to this moment, he'll address this in one of his letters where he says, God does not want anyone to be discouraged. That though you sleep, you are alive with him. And so here, ultimately, you see the, the sorrow of this woman who had done good, this believer who had followed, and, and now she's passed away. And what does Peter do? Peter comes and puts them all outside. Verse 40 tells us, he knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. What a joy. To her friends, surely it was when the power of the resurrection for those who believe is on display and Peter just brings her out and presents her to the friends. What a joy it must have been, a shot in the arm, an encouragement it must have been to speak to the gospel and how the gospel overcomes death in every way and how Jesus has that power. Or what a joy it was for Peter, reassuring him of his calling reassuring him of his position and of the power of Christ. He'd seen this before, but it had been rare. Only three times in the gospel did Jesus raise somebody from the dead. Mark 5 with Jairus' daughter. Or Luke 7, the widow's son at Nain. Or John 11, the more famous one with Lazarus. And there had been none of these actions in the book of Acts. This is the first time that it comes. So this is not, this is not something that, that is normal or commonplace. This is actually quite rare in, in the history of the church as we see it. And now Peter says to this girl, Tabitha, arise, and she does. That's putting yourself out there pretty good, isn't it? As you look to this one who is dead and say, come to life, he may have felt silly. Who talks to a dead person and tells him or her to do something? Yet, he believed that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. He believed he has the power to proclaim life. So he presented her alive because Jesus made her alive. And, and many believed. And so you remember our points of how this speaks to a greater testimony of the future. This resurrection teaches us that though we do die, we shall live again. And as we know that that life we live again is in heaven with him forever. And it points to the gospel because this resurrection, this resurrection causes many, as verse 42, to believe in the Lord. And so this healing, this sign, this wonder points us to the day when death will not reign, but life reigns and points us to a time that the gospel or shows us that the gospel can save us from our sins. So many believed. And we notice also the goodness of God and the message of his kingdom. Peter goes out to encourage the saints and proclaim it. And he doesn't preach death and decay, does he? He's not preaching a, a, a gospel with no change, with no power to do something. Instead, he preaches life and he preaches renewal. 
Instead, he takes what is wrong and makes right again. Instead, he brings hope in the midst of despair. Instead, he brings salvation in the face of death. Peter proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God, and it is not death and decay. It is life, and it is hope, and it is salvation. It's truth. And here, the advancement of the kingdom, the kingdom of the Son, Jesus Christ, where everything that was wrong would be made right again and life is proclaimed and not death, it carries on. In fact, while Peter is the apostle in this story, these two passages are not about Peter at all. They're about Jesus. These two passages are not about Aeneas and, 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 and Tabitha. They're about a savior who has the power to not only save but to redeem and make what's wrong right again. Both miracles, both miracles follow the example of Jesus. When we think about the, the kingdom that comes, we learn a lot from these two passages. The kingdom of Christ Jesus that we as believers belong to testify that both of these miracles followed the example of Jesus. Peter had seen this before. His action was not something he had conjured up or figured out on his own. He had watched Christ do the very same thing. In fact, the same phrasing that was given to Aeneas was given to the paralytic by Jesus when he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. The same phrasing when he, Jesus told the paralytic to get up, get your mat, and go is what he says to Aeneas. Get up, take your bedding, and walk. You were paralyzed and been made. Made right again. Or the echo of Mark 5 as we read it here in this second passage. I've already mentioned Mark 5, but you see, Jesus comes in when Jairus' daughter has died. He sends out all of those who were mourning, and then he reaches down and says, Talitha kum. That's in the Aramaic. You realize if Peter comes in and does the same thing, he sends out all those who were mourning, and he, he lets them go, and then he says to this little girl, Tabitha kum, rise up. Tabitha, arise. Jesus here testifies this for us, that he is the great healer. Peter is simply following in his master's footsteps. He wouldn't even know what to do if it wasn't for Christ Jesus. And so for us, our great example in the kingdom was Jesus himself. We look to what he has done. We look to what he leads us with. We see his message. We see his testimony. If we're going to be in the kingdom of God, we follow Jesus and his word. And his word, his example. But not only do both of these follow example of Jesus, both miracles testify to the power of Jesus. I've mentioned this throughout, but this is not Peter's hand that is doing this or his authority that is doing this. And Peter knows that completely. He says here in Acts 9, when, in verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter knew there was no moment. He was taking credit for this. There was no moment that he could say, it's my power that I'm going to bring you up. You better be glad I showed up today, Aeneas. That was not Peter's message at all. Peter's message to Aeneas was, it's Jesus who can save you and heal you. And here becomes the testimony of anyone who's a follower of Christ. We recognize that I'm saved not because somebody else told me the gospel. I do not give my salvation credit to my father or my mother. I give my salvation credit not to myself as if I have done it or earned it. My salvation credit goes to Jesus and Jesus alone. 
here. This is the story that he says. In the kingdom of God, it is Jesus who welcomes us in. It is Jesus who qualifies us. It is Jesus' power who saves us in his kingdom. It is all about him and his power that can redeem us. Or you can see it as well, not just in Aeneas, but here with Tabitha or Dorcas. Peter was the, the only one present in the room. But when Peter tells the story of what happened, what does Peter say? Very clearly, he does not want to get any credit. Peter put them all outside in verse 40, and he knelt down and prayed. Peter knows even there that it was only the Lord God who can do this. It was only Jesus. Only Peter was present, so he gave the details of the moment. He did not want any credit. It is Jesus who's healed. No one in these days was known as a faith healer. Jesus was the faith healer. Jesus was the one. And remember the Great Commission. Peter only acts in accordance with that truth. Because in the Great Commission to go and make disciples, what did Jesus say at the very beginning? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and I am with you always. Go. Peter acts with the authority and power of Christ Jesus. Both miracles pointed to the salvation of Jesus as well. Because of his confidence to the power of Jesus, Peter looked to both and said, get up. Get up. In verse 34, verse 40, he says the same word to both of them. In the Greek, it's anistemi, which is the same word that is used for Jesus being raised from the dead. It's the same word that speaks to resurrection, in other words, this is not an accident. I think that that's the word Peter used. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, testifying that he has overcome death, he has overcome sin, he has overcome all the effects, just as he rose from the dead, he raises these up from the dead. Both were visible signs of the new life into which by the power of the resurrection we as sinners have been raised to. There were, new, there were signs of this new life of how we walk in Christ and the power of his resurrection, and Paul would later say. Again, this is the part that points us to something greater. The end, when all is made right again, it looks to there, and it's only through this one can we have salvation, Christ Jesus, and these, these healings or miracles point us to that. How we too can be raised. I said earlier, who in the world would speak to the dead and tell them to do something? I seek to do it every week. Because the scriptures tell us that those who are without Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. And you too were dead when you heard the gospel. You too were like Lazarus in the tomb, right? Come out from your sins. Come out from it. And you heard that word, having your ears quickened by the power of the Spirit. You heard that word and you responded. You were dead and you've been made alive again. This death to life miracle only testifies to the power of Jesus and the salvation that comes in his name. In his name. Both miracles radiated the glory of Jesus. Our Savior saves sinners. By which we are all testifying to, if you're a child of God. Many people believed because of these. Our Savior brings life. 
Our Savior takes what is wrong and makes it right again. Our Savior does not bring death and decay, but life and renewal. He brings that resurrection power. Our Savior takes all of our sins and washes them whiter than slow. Our Savior takes all of the effects of our sin and reverses that, making what was wrong right. Our Savior has the power to not only save us, but to hold us and keep us forever. And so ultimately, what we see say here, in the face of these miracles, in the face of our own life and testimony, is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we boast not in ourselves. It's not what I have done. It's what he has done for me. This is the key for us, the key for the kingdom. And so what does it mean for us as we even close out? What do we look to as a church or as a people? We recognize that we must lean completely on the example of Jesus Christ. Like these ones here, it was only by Christ that they're they're made right again. As an individual, I must lean completely on the example of Christ. Follow after him. Follow in his footsteps. How he loved is how I should love. How he was sent is how I should be sent. How he goes is how I should go. We see that, and not only that, when we go, we lean completely on the power of Jesus, knowing that it's his authority that we go in, not our own. We proclaim clearly the salvation of Jesus, knowing he's the only one that can reverse the effects of the curse of sin and death. And we proclaim boldly the glory of Jesus, not ourselves, but only him. And so today, that's simply it. As we come, we, we want to recommit ourselves to lean on the example of Christ, the power of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and the glory of Christ. And recognize today that if you are lost and undone, you're like this woman here who was dead, and God raised her back up. You too can come to life today. Hear the word of Christ screaming out to you, come to me. And like Lazarus or Tabitha or Jairus' daughter, rise up in the power of the resurrection and be saved from your sins. That's our call today as a church, as a people, to depend completely upon the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that Your word gives us, and so now, Father, I pray that you would work in every heart in this place and that today Jesus would be glorified in every heart, in every life, and may the testimony be that Jesus saved me from every single person in this room. He's got the power, Father. He's got the authority. The glory is his. Salvation belongs to him. This is his kingdom. And so, God, welcome us into it and let us live in light of it. All for your name we pray. Jesus Christ, our Lord.